parables here that Jesus uh, teaches from. So Luke chapter 15. Firstly, the parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I find my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then finally, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods at the pigs' reading, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could, even a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My father, the, my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Thank you, everyone. Uh, it feels like it's been a while since I've been up here. I think uh, the last time I was preaching in Kirkpatrick, it was very early on in this series. Uh, we were looking at the, well, I, pretty much me and about three other people, I think, because it was Christmas, um, in the Christmas kind of week, we were looking at the Song of Simeon. And uh, I was going to say, it almost feels like there's that few people here this morning, but I've kind of looked up and noticed the gallery is bunged this morning for some reason. So, hello to everyone uh, who's up there. Um, Let's, we've just prayed um, for God to speak to us, but let's just re-echo that prayer now as we come to God's word. Let's just pray briefly. Our Father God, we pray that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us. Refashion us into your likeness this morning uh, through the light of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, what is the ideal soundtrack to your party? I wonder what your favourite party music is. Whatever it is this morning, I want you to kind of make it the soundtrack to this sermon. Just sort of mentally flick a switch in your head and start playing your favourite party tunes. Because this morning, we get to rejoice with the shepherds. As they uh, join the, the celebration as the shepherd brings his lost sheep home. We get to share in the woman's joy. We get to dance with the father. Because the dead are alive again. The lost have been found. Praise the Lord. If you've read much of the Bible to children, you're bound to have come across these stories, I think. They're such great material. Uh, But they can, I think, make these stories seem possibly more familiar to us than they really are. Um, As part of my prep this week, I've been reading um, some of these stories to our our kids. And I couldn't help but notice, as I was looking at this one last night, um, the kind of image that we get often of what these stories are like, you can see Jesus sort of strolling through a field here with his arm around a little boy. And I think if we come to these stories with that picture in our minds, there's a danger we'll get off on the wrong foot. Because Jesus wasn't telling these stories while he was out, out for a gentle Sunday afternoon stroll. The evangelist Luke has told us that Jesus had set his face on a journey to go towards Jerusalem, there to die there to rise again for our redemption. Jesus had deliberately made a choice to head to the city of his death. And it's along the way that he tells these stories as he wants to teach people about what the salvation that he's come to bring is really all about. And I'm afraid he's not just telling a story with his arm around a shoulder to a lovely little boy of a different ethnicity, interestingly. But um, he's, he's, uh, he's telling these stories. Uh, have a look who he's telling them to. Verse uh, 1 of our chapter. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
And that seems to be in response to uh, the call that Jesus made just at the end of uh, chapter 14. You can see it there. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the people who are using their ears are these tax collectors and sinners. But that is controversial. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus is telling these stories in a highly charged situation. He's on his way to die, and he's involved in a controversy about who God's salvation is really for. And so he tells this parable, verse 3. In fact, he tells three parables, but they're really tightly linked together as one single unit. Uh, Phillips uh, pointed out to us as we've read uh, that we've got these two very similar parables of the shepherd and the woman, and then this much longer parable of the two sons. And the, 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 the parable of the two sons is so rich, it's quite tempting to focus just on that this morning. But I'm not going to do that today, partly because uh, Tim Keller has done a really magnificent job of really looking into this parable and pulling out all of the, the details and goodness in it. Um, it's, it's all written up in a book called The Prodigal God. If you've never read any Tim Keller, or if you've never really read a Christian book, this is a really great place to start. It's, it's pretty short. It's really going to get you into the heart of what this passage is saying, really um, in a way that will just help you to appreciate God uh, more deeply. So if you haven't read that, get it this summer and read it on your beach holiday or whatever it is. It's, it's short and it's really good. Um, and because Keller's done that, that sort of feels, frees me up, if you like, to, to take a step back from that parable and try and look at all of these parables and try and get a sense of what, what is the message of all of these parables. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I think if you look at them, you'll, you'll quickly realise that there's four things at least that they all have in common. They've all got something that's lost. They've all got something that's found. They've all got the person who finds the lost thing rejoicing, and they've all got the person inviting others to rejoice with him. And this morning, we're just going to think about those things together. We're going to think about what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be found? What does it mean for God to rejoice? And what does it mean for us to rejoice with God? So firstly then, what does it mean to be lost? Three things go missing in these stories. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And Jesus makes it very obvious what these things are representing. Just have a look down at verse 7, the conclusion to the lost sheep story. Jesus says, I tell you that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Lost things in these stories represent sinners. And so Jesus says, imagine sinners like this, like a lost sheep wandering away from the care of its shepherd. Like a coin that's slipped out of somebody's wallet and fallen down the back of a sofa. To be a sinner is almost to be out of place, to be away from where you're meant to be. And you can see that very vividly in the younger son. He wants his father's money. He says, divide the inheritance with me, dad. And not long after the father does so, the son packs everything up and he goes. He's leaving home. He's going away from where he belongs. He's turning his back on his dad. That's what sin is. It's about being out of place. It's about being lost. And we see the consequences of that in the younger son. It leads to him living life in the far country. 
It's a place where people are cold, where they don't share what they have with each other. And the reason is, is because nobody has very much. We're told that a famine strikes this land and everyone is hungry. Nobody's getting what they really need in this country. And the son is reduced to eating the food of pigs in order to keep himself going. It's a very vivid, quite a brutal picture of of how sin dehumanizes us, how it makes us almost subhuman, end up eating pig food. Sin is about getting lost. It's one of those Bible words, isn't it, that we use quite a lot, and it's helpful, I think, to have some sort of definition in our mind. When When we think about sin, what do we mean by that? I think often one of the words I tend to use is rebellion. I tend to say, oh yeah, sin, it's when we rebel against God, when we try to live our life our own way and get God out of the picture, where we sort of take control of our lives. And that works well, I think. I think we can understand what that means. Particularly for those of us who are perhaps relatively successful in life, pretty good at taking control of our lives. We can, we can connect with the idea that, yeah, we do that with God. We can understand how it's wrong to try and live a life that's independent of God. But the trouble, I think, with just making our definition of sin rebellion is it, is it actually kind of makes our sin sound a little bit better than it really is or a little bit more important than it is. Because it sounds like what we're doing when we're sinning is we're kind of doing an inappropriate attempt to, to take back control. We're sort of trying to, to be our own boss. We're, we're, we're planting our own flag and, and we're going to live life our own way. But actually, when we sin, we're actually not really making ourselves more fundamentally. We're actually making ourselves less. We're getting lost. And I think a a definition that will help us kind of get this really clear in our minds is is an older one. It's from the Shorter Catechism. Uh, Now, some of you, I know, will know this off by heart. Uh, You had this with your porridge. But uh, if you're like me, you actually don't know this stuff that well. So I thought I'd put it up and, and we'll just read through it together this morning. I'll just turn this around here. Uh, So the the catechism asks, what is sin? And it replies, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. And the part I want us to focus on this morning is the bit in italics. Sin is a a lack of something, the the catechism is saying. It's a kind of failure to have something. It's a kind of a nothingness. It's a kind of less of something. It's a want of conformity to God's law. At its core, sin is not a gain, but a loss. Now, it's quite hard to illustrate this, because often sin will look like you gain something. We know in the long run it doesn't, but a lot of the time when you sin, you do gain something, but not when you see it God's way. And that's why Jesus hammers this point home with these parables. We need to see that when the sheep goes astray, he's not really getting a new pasture. He's losing his place with the shepherd. When a coin gets lost down the back of the sofa, it's not finding itself. It's just a lost coin down the back of the sofa. When the son uh, leaves for the far country for an exciting life of sex, drugs and rock and roll, what he's really doing is losing his dad. That's what sin does. It's fundamentally about losing God, losing our place with him. So brothers and sisters, I've got to encourage you this morning, don't give it up. See sin for what it is. See it as a loss. See it as becoming less than what we're meant to be.
So then, what does it mean to be found in these stories? Let's come back to verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Lost in these stories, uh, sorry, lost things are found in these stories. That means sinners are repenting. To be found is to be repenting. Now, we've had sin. Here's another kind of nasty Bible word, repenting. I don't know about you, but often repentance feels like sort of the small print of the gospel message. Yeah, there's this great stuff about Jesus dying for our sins, uh, offering us free forgiveness. Oh, and by the way, you've got to repent. You know, it sounds like the, the kind of all the stuff that you have to read at the bottom of a contract just to make sure that you're not getting hoodwinked. It's the stuff that you don't really want to do, but you kind of have to do it. But let's see if the way Jesus talks about repentance can, can change our, our minds on that a little bit. I wonder if you noticed, as Philip read through, how each of these stories is, is centering on the home. I think you see this most strikingly with the shepherd. Uh, when the sheep gets found, he doesn't just get sort of put back in the field where he, where he left. He gets carried home to have a party. And the woman, she's cleaning her home. And the son, obviously, he's coming home to his dad. Repentance is about coming home. Verse 17 gives us a really close-up view of what, what that looks like. Uh, this is the younger son. He comes to his senses and he says to himself, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The son looks around at his squalor and he realises he really doesn't want to be there anymore. He wants to be at home with his dad. He realises he's got nothing, he's given up everything. He doesn't deserve to be with his father. But he's going to go home and throw himself on his mercy because he knows that his father is generous. And that's what repentance is all about. It's about recognising We don't want to live away from God anymore. We want to come home. Now, I'm not going to spend long really trying to bed this in because it fits very neatly with what we just saw about sin. If if sin is about being in the wrong place, about being away from God, about being lost, repentance is about being in the right place again. It's good. And this is why Jesus came to die, so that we could repent, so that we could come back to God. It's not the sort of small print of the gospel. It's part of the wonderful good news of the gospel, that we can repent and come home to our Father. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that how we live doesn't matter. The younger son does leave his old life totally behind, doesn't he? And he acknowledges his sin. He says, I've sinned before heaven and against you. And he throws himself on his father's mercy. It's as radical a change as death and life. But we need to remember this. This isn't now just a life of a new set of random rules. This is about life with God. This is about living with the Father. A life orientated to God. Repentance then is about coming home. And I think I need to ask us this morning, have we done that? 
Have we really come home? Or are we still lost? Probably in a group like this, there are some people who have maybe sat in churches a lot of times over the years, but we've never really come home to the Father. We've never really embraced him. Or maybe some of us have done that, but over the years we've started to to drift off again. If that's you this morning, don't see repentance as bad news. See it as good news. See it as a chance to come home. We need to recognise our emptiness. We need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. And we need to begin life again with him. And if we're going to do that, then we need to be really confident that, that God will welcome us, don't we? If we're going to make ourselves vulnerable to God like that and throw ourselves onto his mercy, it would help, I think, to know how he's going to respond. Unfortunately, that's something I don't think you can miss as you read these stories. Rejoice with me, says the returning shepherd. Rejoice with me, says the woman who finds her coin. And the father, that wonderful seed, he runs towards his son. He sees him approaching in the distance. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And he cannot wait to get the party started now that his son has come home. But that raises a question that I want us to consider next. What does it actually mean for God to rejoice? It's easy enough, I think, to imagine a a shepherd rejoicing, or a woman rejoicing, or a father rejoicing. But if you start thinking about it a little bit, it's quite hard, I think, to, to really work out what it means for God to rejoice, exactly. And in fact, this chapter never directly says that God does rejoice. The closest we get is in verse 10. Just have a look down at that, because it blink and you'll miss it. In the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this verse isn't saying that the angels are rejoicing here. Notice it's rejoicing in the presence of the angels or before the angels. Well, who is before the angels? Who's in the presence of the angels? God. God is rejoicing over sinners repenting. But the Lord is using deliberately guarded language here, I think. Because it's easy to get the wrong end of the stick about this. God's joy isn't like our joy. It's not kind of subject to coming and going. God isn't dependent on us about whether he's going to have a good day or not. No, in fact, the gospel teaches us, Paul says, to, to rejoice in the eternally happy God, the blessed God. God is pure joy, the Bible tells us. And out of his joy, he creates us to share in his life with him. And when we return to God, God so thoroughly approves of that, with no holds barred. The only way that we can express that, or even come close to expressing it, is to say that God rejoices. And the focus of this passage is in what he's rejoicing in. And it's put most provocatively, I think, in verse 7. Have a look at that. You maybe had a question about this as we read it a couple of times earlier. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus says you can take 99 Pharisees with their accumulation of self-righteousness and righteousness in the eyes of others, their, um, their checks for charity, 
their educational achievements, their devotion to God's law in a secularizing society, their, their Bible reading and their church attendance. You can take 99 of the righteousnesses of these Pharisees, but take one sinner, one person in the eyes of God and in the eyes of society who is totally away from God. Take one of those persons truly coming back to God. And that's what makes God rejoice. He loves that with all his heart. But what, what good news that is to the sinners and the tax collectors who were gathering around Jesus. You are welcome back home. Many of us, I guess, carry around a sense of failure, both in front of society and in God's eyes. We know that we're not all that we should be. But forget about that now, because look, here we are being carried, bouncing up and down on the shepherd's shoulders as he comes home and he's singing for joy that he's found you. Look at the woman. She's calling all heaven together to say rejoice with me, because she's found you. Look, here we are. The father is calling the servants to clothe us as quick as he can with the best robe, to put his ring on us, the equivalent of his credit card and pin number, to put the sandals on us and to kill the fattened calf for us because we were dead to him. But now we're alive. We were lost. But now he's found us. God rejoices in sinners repenting and coming home to him. So, So rejoice with him. See yourself the way God sees you. He loves you with all his heart if you've come back to him. So we've seen something about what it means to be lost, something about what it means to be found, and something about God rejoicing over those that he's found. And so friends, if you haven't already, you've got to come home, haven't you? How could you miss out on this? The table is set. The food is being ready to be served. We're all waiting for you. Come home. Come in and join the party. Don't stand outside in the cold. Well, that raises our final question. What does it really mean to join in God's party? What does it mean to rejoice with God? Uh, Each of these stories has this kind of invitation in it. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me. The woman does the same thing. And then, most dramatically of all, we get this story about the older son. Just start looking with me at the end of the passage. Um, The older son uh, hears the dancing, the, the party ramping up to celebrate his younger brother's return. He finds out what's going on and he stands outside. And when his father comes out to speak to him, uh, the older brother hits his father with a rant. Verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fund calf for him. I think you can get some of the sense of the pent-up bitterness that's exploding after years of being suppressed here. This son sees his father as a slave driver, and he sees himself as totally righteous. He's self-righteous. 
He says he's never disobeyed any of his dad's orders. And yet, all the time, all he really wanted to do was to throw a party for him and his mates. And when his father comes out and asks him to join his party, this this son says no. It's suddenly become clear just how far away from the father he's been while all the time he's been living at home. And you'll remember the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees at the start of this chapter. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, now they're getting their dirty hearts held up before them as Jesus puts this mirror to them. And it's ugly. These people are self-righteous, and they don't love God. But this, this parable isn't, I don't think, sort of pure condemnation. There's still an invitation. Because the father gets the last word. Have a look at verse 31. My son, my child, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Rejoice with me, says the father. Historically speaking, we know most of these Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't take up this invitation very sadly. They led the people of Israel to crucify their saviour. And as the gospel went out into the world, as we've been seeing in the book of Acts, time and time again, it's the Jewish religious leaders who are stirring up trouble for the gospel. And this story tells us why. The older son, at the end of the day, wants what God can give, but he actually doesn't want God. He wants the the goat so that he can celebrate with his friends, but he doesn't really love what God loves. He doesn't really love the salvation of sinners. And so he's left standing outside in the cold. He's a stranger to the music and to the dancing. So this passage closes with a a reminder, I think a really penetrating reminder, that there is more than one way to be lost. Many of us will have grown up in the home, so to speak, in Christian community, in church circles. We're here week by week, or at least uh, as often as we can be. And this passage reminds us that we can do that, we can be that, and we can still be very much far from God. Further away, in fact, than this lost son who's come home. There's more than one way to be lost, but praise God, there is then more than one way to be found. God welcomes the repentance both of this sinner who turns back towards him and of this sinner who was close to him the whole time but never really loved him for who he was. So whether we see ourselves this morning as sinners or as righteous, let's come back to God this morning knowing that he rejoices to find us. I think if I was to try and sum up in one phrase what I think this passage is doing, I think the Lord is trying to rewire our hearts here. He's sort of setting before us such amazing joy, isn't he? 
He's almost challenging us. How could you not delight in this? How could you not share the Father's heart for lost sinners? How could you not share in the joy of welcoming repentant sinners home? Go on, I dare you. So friends, let's, let's not miss this invitation. Let's rejoice with God this morning. Let's make sure that we don't stand outside in the cold. Let's love what God loves. That he welcomes repenting sinners home. Well, these stories are so rich, we've barely touched on them today. Uh, We've seen something, I hope, of the real nature of sin and of repentance. Uh, We've seen something of God's real deep approval of repenting sinners. And we've seen how important it is that we share God's heart. But let's remember, as we close, that this isn't just a story. There really was a shepherd who came looking for his lost sheep. In a few weeks' time, we're going to come to a passage where Jesus says that he's come to seek and to save what was lost. He is the good shepherd who's come looking for his lost sheep. He is the woman who, coming into this world, has lit a lamp and sweeps the house, coming to find us. As he goes to Jerusalem, he goes into the far country... And he goes there to bear the consequences of our sin. He goes there to die in our place. And he rises again three days later. And he comes to his father, not in humiliation and in repentance, but with great joy because he has paid for our sin. And he receives on our behalf the best robe, the sandals, the ring. And he sits down to a party that will never end. A party that he invites us to this morning, saying, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for what was dead is alive again. What was lost is found. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you might uh, do this work in us of rewiring our hearts so that we would rejoice with you from the bottom of our hearts in your rejoicing in us from the bottom of your heart. Father, help us to, to love what you love and to be always wanting to be with you. We pray for anyone here this morning who feels like they haven't been living with you as their father and we ask that they would return to you this morning and we ask that we be a church that welcomes repenting sinners that doesn't put up any barriers uh, that doesn't uh, have any whispers or any grumbling at the kind of people that you're drawing to yourself and we pray that we might share in what you're doing we pray that we might welcome lost sinners as they repent and come back to you we ask that in jesus name amen